0: Merry Christmas, everybody. Hope you are ready for tomorrow. And uh, I, I would guess that there's some of you who still have some last minute shopping to do. So good luck with that. Um, and, and just excited today that we get to celebrate uh, the, the true meaning of Christmas that Jesus came to us, that He made a way for us to know God, to be able to know who God is and what God's like, that he made a way for us to be able to come to God. And so uh, that's what we're actually going to talk about today. Um, The message is coming out of a scripture that's not necessarily a Christmas scripture, but it's a scripture that I believe points exactly to the reason that Jesus came. And so we're in this series called You Came where we've been looking at the reasons that Jesus did come to us, the reason he left heaven and came to earth, the reason that he came and died for us on a cross, the reason that he was resurrected. And so uh, today we're going to actually be in John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to look at why Jesus came, specifically uh, that he came to show us God. He came to reveal God. He came to reveal himself As God, and he came to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. And so John chapter 5, we're going to read the first 18 verses there. It's a little bit of reading, so hang in there, and um, then we'll get into the message. It says in John 5 verse 1, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? That's an important question for us to ask ourselves this morning. He says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. They had a superstition that an angel would come down, stir the water, and the first person into the water would be healed. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried to kill all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth, and we thank you for the truth of what we celebrate in this season, that you came to earth. You came and died to give us life. You came and took our sins so that we could be forgiven. You came to give us life, Lord, and today I pray that that would sink in. I pray that for those of us who may be walking in darkness or those of us who may have areas of our heart that we've shielded from your light, that God, today you would move us by your love and grace and mercy to a place of redemption and wholeness. Lord, we love you and thank you that you have loved us so well and so perfectly. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever been in a situation where you knew you were in trouble? Raise your hand. How many of, let me, some of you didn't raise your hands. How, how many of you have had that moment when the blue lights came on and you knew I'm in trouble, right? How many of you have never been pulled over by the police? Wow. That's impressive. Um, I can't say that. But anyway, the blue lights come on. You know you're in trouble. When I was a, a, a boy, a, a, a young boy, I, I remember my dad had this look that he would give me, and I knew that I was in trouble. He would cock his jaw to the side a little bit, and he would just stare at me in this way that I was like, I may die right now. And so I, I knew that I was in trouble. There's, there's those times where we know, like, I'm in trouble, um, That that... that I've gotten myself into some deep water here and some, in a bad situation. And Jesus finds himself in this place where he, he has put himself intentionally in, in a place where he's in trouble. Um, he did it, though, for a good reason. He did it uh, to fulfill his purpose. He did it so that he could accomplish the mission for which he came. And so he's doing all of this to reveal one thing. He's revealing to the people, to the Jewish leaders, that he is equal to God, that he is the son of God, that he himself is God. And he's trying to get them to see that he is um, the, the God revealed to mankind. The Bible says that Jesus is the express image of God, meaning that when we look at God, we see the Father. We see what God is like and so this miracle that he does is really a sign and John in the gospel of John uses signs a lot instead of calling them miracles because signs point to something beyond themselves and this miracle that Jesus does with this man at the the pool of Bethesda is something that's more than a miracle it's a sign to show people that that I am who I say I am. I want you to see who I am. And so as we celebrate Christmas and the coming of Christ, I want you to see today that this is Jesus revealing himself as God. And in this, he comes to show us what the Father's like, to show us what his heart's like, to make a way for us to come to him. Jesus gets in trouble for doing a really good thing on the Sabbath. And we can see that the Jewish leaders there at that time, they were more concerned with some rules that they had come up with than they were with the healing of this man. They see a man who hasn't walked in at least 38 years and they they look at him and they're like, why are you carrying your mat? Instead of celebrating and rejoicing and worshiping God for an incredible act, they're like, how dare you carry a mat on the Sabbath? And, And so they're, Their focus is off. And Jesus, this is so cool to me. Jesus does this several times in the Bible. Jesus doesn't go, well, look, I'm sorry. I I really, I didn't mean to offend you. I just wanted to help this man. Jesus didn't try to back out of it and even justify his actions from a standpoint of not wanting to get in trouble. Jesus presses the issue even further. He's like, you think that's something. Wait for the next sentence that's coming out of my mouth. He says basically this. He says, God, the Father, is always at work. This this is true that God rested after the seventh day, right? After he had finished creation in six days, on the seventh he rested. But think about all the other things that God was still doing. He was still holding the universe and everything in it together. And so we look at this and Jesus is saying, just as the Father is always at work, Just as he never sleeps nor slumbers, just as his hands are always holding things together, he's saying, so I am working also. So that he's telling them, I am like the Father. I am equal to the Father. I and the Father are one. And he's wanting them to see this, to reveal this. And you notice when he was just healing on the Sabbath, they began to persecute him. When he claimed to be God, they really flipped out and they started trying to kill him. And so he's made this claim very clear. This miracle, this sign was his opportunity to more boldly and more clearly make this claim that I am equal to the Father when you go and you look at verse 19, he says that Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. He's using something from their culture where sons would always typically follow in their father's footsteps. They would learn a trade and the father would teach them how to do this trade and, and they would begin to do the things that their father does. And so what he's saying basically is just as your son's Do the things that you do. Just as other fathers teach their sons their trade, he's saying, I'm following my father's trade. I'm doing what he does. He and I are one. He and I have this relationship. He says, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. He says, We're in this relationship, and the anchor of this relationship is that I love the Father and the Father loves me. And out of this continual relationship with the Father, I know exactly what he is doing. We are so connected that we act as one. And see, here's the cool thing about it for us as Christians we have the same opportunity to have that connection with God. We don't become God, but God puts his spirit in us so that we can have this continual affection, this continual relationship with God. He goes on and even makes a greater claim, a greater statement. He says, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He's saying, I'm sovereign over life and death. He said, I, just like the father has given life, just like the father breathed life into the first human beings, just like the father created life from nothing. He said, I have the sovereign power to give you life. I have the sovereign power to give you something that no one else can give you. He says, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Here's another huge important thing. He says, listen, I'm sovereign even over the judgment. He's saying, I'm sovereign over sin. And if you think about Jesus and other miracles and in other times, he would tell people, your sins are forgiven It would enrage the Jewish leaders and amaze the people because they would ask themselves, who is this man that can forgive sins? And now Jesus is making it clear that I can forgive sins for two reasons. One, I'm the ultimate judge. I'm equal to God. I'm one with God. And two, I'm gonna do something for you that's gonna allow your sins to be forgiven, that's gonna allow your sin to be taken away, that's gonna allow you to be reconciled back to God himself. And so he's making this very clear claim. I want you to see those three things. One, that he was in a relationship of love, anchored by love in the Father. Two, he has the ability to give life. And three, he has the ability to forgive sin. And so those things are all crucial for us to understand. Verse 24, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Jesus keeps pressing this issue. He he wants them to see it. He wants us to see it. Listen, this is the point and the purpose of chapter five in the gospel of John. His claim to be God, his claim to be able to forgive sins, his claim to be able to give life. He wants us to see that. And I want you to see out of this verse, something that's very important, something we need to grab hold of and embrace. And it's that he says, when we come to faith in him, when we believe in his name, not when we mentally assent to Jesus, not when we begin to do church Things, not when we begin to come to church but he's saying when you believe in other words when you begin to trust in who I am the words I say and what I've done he says that person has gone from death to life I want you to see that the love of God that Jesus said he has with the father is now it is here for some of us the day of salvation is today it's not to wait till tomorrow or next year or the next decade it's today he says that love is available today he says listen life going from spiritual death to spiritual life is available today he's saying when you come to faith When you come to trust in Christ, what he's telling us is that you go from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's saying that's now. He's saying you've crossed into eternity at the moment that you've put your faith in Christ. He's given you life. He's saying right now, your sins have been forgiven. If our faith is in Christ, they've been taken away if we believe if we trust. He's saying that's now. Now we receive that now. We begin to walk in that now and it's a taste of what we're going to receive completely and perfectly later. But we begin to have that now. But the opposite of that is true. We oftentimes choose to reject the love of the Father. We oftentimes choose to walk away from Him, not to live in Him, not to love him and have his love in us we oftentimes reject his offer of life so we continue to walk in spiritual darkness spiritual death we oftentimes realize that one day we may even believe we're going to be held accountable for the things we've done but we don't realize that even now if we don't come to Christ if our life is not found in him. We already walk in judgment. We already walk in darkness. And again, it's a foretaste of what's to come. And it's not God being mean. It's not God being ugly. It's not God doesn't love you. It's the exact opposite. God loves you so much that he made a way for you to have him. But if ultimately we don't desire him, at the end of the day, he will give us what we want. And so we have to come to the verdict. We've got to come to the conclusion. Where am I in this? Do I love God? Do I want God? Do I have the love of God in me? He goes on and we're going to jump over to verse 31. Because the question that would have been in the Jewish leaders minds or one of the questions is how can you say this you're testifying about yourself and in a Jewish court no one was convicted or no one was was set free on the basis of like one eyewitness to be convicted you had to have two witnesses somebody had to bring the charge and then there had to be someone else who testified to the same thing And so Jesus goes and he says, if you don't believe me, if you're thinking that I'm just propping myself up, if you think that I'm just testifying about myself, what I want you to see is that I have witnesses that testify with me. And so the first one is in verse 31 and 32. He says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. He's talking about God the Father. He's talking about God himself. He's saying, look... This is where I gain my confidence. This is where I gain my purpose. This is who's called me to the mission. I have the confidence of God, the father, the power of the spirit within me so that I can do the things that I was sent here to do that I have come to accomplish. And so he's saying, God himself testifies about me. He goes on, he says, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. He's saying, John the Baptist came before me. He came to prepare the way for me. He came to prepare your hearts to receive me and who I am and the message that I come with and, and the work that I would do. He's saying, John the Baptist testified about me. He's saying, some of you even repented at John's message, but now the one he was pointing to, you're rejecting He says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. He's saying, look, look at the signs. Look at all that God's done through me. Look at all that I've accomplished while I've been here. He's saying, look where the signs are pointing. They testify to me. He says, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. This would have been a big deal for him to say to them. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's telling them, look, all of the scripture point clearly to this moment. You know the scriptures, but you don't know the one they point to. You know the scriptures, but you don't have a relationship with God. He's saying, look, you know all these things, but you still don't know me. You don't recognize me. Listen, the most trained people in the word, the most trained people in the law, the most trained people in scripture had God who these scriptures were pointing to, standing in front of them, and they didn't recognize Him. What a crazy thing and what a challenge to us to realize that it is possible to be around God, to even be in the presence of God and yet not recognize God when he is there with you. Verse 45, skip on down. But do not think I will accuse you before the father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? He's been hitting them pretty hard. But this one would have really socked them. It would have really gotten their attention. Because they saw Moses as their advocate before God. They saw Moses as their deliverer when he brought them out of Egypt. Moses was one of the patriarchs of their faith. And he's saying, look, you know the words of Moses but you don't even know me. He's saying, look, you've embraced all the things that Moses said and did and taught, but you're rejecting the one that he was pointing you to. He's saying, you have learned all of these things that Moses taught about God, but you don't have a heart to love God. And that is an easy thing for us to miss, just like they Missed it and Jesus. Uh, man, like I, I love studying scripture, I love preparing for messages. But this week, this chapter, man, it just blew my mind. It convicted me, it, it spoke to me. I enjoyed studying it as much as I've ever enjoyed studying anything because it just really comes alive. You really begin to see what Jesus is doing, and He's trying to show them again that He is God, that He has the, the ability to forgive sin, that He has the ability. to to give life he's wanting them to see this and he explains it all he gives five witnesses he does all these things trying to get them to see but at the end of the day Jesus knew this and we have to recognize this that it wasn't something that they just needed more explanation it wasn't an intellectual problem it wasn't a mental issue or a comprehensive issue At the end of the day, it wasn't something that more uh, teaching was going to fix because Jesus knew this and we've got to recognize this. The problem wasn't intellectual. The problem was that they were spiritually sick, that their hearts were spiritually dead, spiritually numb to God. And he's trying to get them to see. He's presenting it to them, but their hard hearts would not receive it. And I I realize that it's not comfortable a lot of times to talk about our heart and the fact that our hearts are deceitful, that our, our hearts are sick, that our hearts are numb, that we've rejected God in so many different ways in our heart. But it's imperative. It's imperative that we as a church are willing to Acknowledge this and recognize this because if we don't embrace the bad news, the good news will never be good news. It'd be like going to the doctor and the doctor not wanting to tell you a diagnosis. It'd be like walking in with a cough, a runny nose, a headache, a fever and the doctor looking at you going, you're gonna be okay. Going home, you'll be okay. Or, or, or saying, Come here, let me give you a hug. I love you. Like, that's great, but I want you to do something, right? Give a pat on the back and send us on our way feeling good about ourselves. And so many times that's what the church is operated as. The good news is good news. The gospel is the light of the world, but it's only the light of the world if we see it against the black, the black background of our sin and our hopelessness. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked, above all things. What Jeremiah 17, nine says, who can understand it? Jesus. And so I wanna go back to this miracle for a second. I wanna go back and look at this healing that takes place because this man had been there for 38 years. Think about putting yourself in that situation. He couldn't provide for himself. He couldn't get himself to the pool. He couldn't do any of these things for himself. He couldn't make himself well. He was dependent on everyone else. Even in regards of trying to take care of himself, he was very limited And yet Jesus, with the possibility, because there was a festival of thousands of people laying around this pool, Jesus goes to the one who, out of all of them, was the most helpless. Could do nothing for himself. And I want you to understand that apart from Christ, we can do nothing for ourselves. We we can't heal ourselves. We can do nothing apart from him but if you look at this miracle Jesus heals this man and he yes heals him so that he can walk but he goes on and challenges him about his sin because Jesus is not satisfied just giving this man a physical healing but leaving him unwhole and I want you to know that God's heart for us is to bring us to a place of wholeness to heal the wounds in our heart, to heal the sin in our life and in our heart, to bring us to wholeness. Wholeness is when God fills the, the holes in our identity with his truth and secures us in himself. Wholeness is when God fills the cracks in our life and in our heart with his life and his light so that it expels the darkness, so that we can walk in who he is and have the peace and the joy and the life that he wants us to have. But we so often limit God. This man and even with Jesus standing in front of him was still putting limits on what God could do. If you look at verse 7, or actually back up to verse 6 because there's something important we need to look at. The first thing Jesus says to him is do you want to get well? Do you want to be well? That seems like a silly question, but he'd been in this condition so long. Maybe he had just conditioned himself to it. And here's the thing I know about us. We oftentimes condition ourselves to accept less than what God wants to do in our life. And the question I'm challenging you with, because I love you, because God loves you, because he wants to do a work in you so that he can do a work through you to give you a mission, to give you a purpose, is do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Verse 7, sir, the envelope replied, I have no one. The first limitation we put on God is oftentimes we look to people to do this for us rather than God himself. We look for people to to somehow be our savior, our spouse or whoever it might be. We look to them to give us what we need. They were never designed for that. Material things were never designed for that. That's a role that only God can do. But we look to other people. When we were over in the high school, we had a guy who came to church and got saved. And I ain't going to lie, he, he, he was a little cuckoo. And um, he used to come and tell me every time I saw him that I saved him. He was like, there's the man that saved me. He came up in front of a bunch of connectors one time. We were talk, I was talking to some connectors and he said, uh, that's the man that saved me right there. Right there in front of all of them, I had to sit there and explain to him again, like, I didn't save you. And he goes, oh yeah, you did. I was like, oh no, I didn't. I was like, I didn't die on the cross for you. I don't know, that I give my life for you? I'm just being honest. And, and, and then he's like, well, I got a picture of you on my phone. He showed me a screensaver, it was me preaching. I was like, I, I may die right now. This is weird, this is, I was like, what? This is way beyond anything rational, right? And so every time I see him, I had to explain that to him. But we do that in so many different ways. We look for other people to to, to save us, to do in us what only God can do. And we got to realize, look, we need community. We need other believers around us. But all of that begins when we have our relationship with God, when we're united around the gospel, When we're bound together by the Holy Spirit, that's when true community, that's when the church is the church. Not a building, not an organization, not a strategy. It's when the church is the church. Verse 7, he goes on and he says, I have no one. He says, to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Another limitation we put on God is we think that God's power only operates in a certain time and a certain place. He's saying, look, God couldn't do anything in my life if I'm not in there when the water stirred. And we think, what a silly superstition. Most likely there was a spring feeding the pool and every now and then it'd bubble over and they were all like, yeah, jumping in. And we look at it and go, how silly but we do so much of the same thing. So much of our spiritual life is just based off of being here from 9 to 10:15 or from 11 to 12:15. See, listen, this right here, this should be the exclamation point on the worship we've already had all week. This shouldn't be the sentence. If this is all you're getting, then you're going to starve to death. But one of the things that ticks me off more than anything else is when somebody comes up to me and says, I just don't feel like I'm getting fed. Feed yourself! (laughs) I can tell you this. If you go eat lunch with me after church and you think I'm going to stick your fork in your mouth, You're going to starve. I can't spoon feed you everything. I can't be your savior. I can't be the one that gives you all that you need. That's not what I'm designed to do. That's not what I'm created to do. That is unbiblical. That is unbased. You need to have a relationship with God where you're in this yourself and God is speaking to your heart so that when you come here and I've read my Bible and I've heard my God and I proclaim the word to you that you can go, yep, that's what I've been doing all week long. All right. If not, we're we're missing it, we're missing out, we're missing the point. Too many times, listen, even Our Bible reading becomes the end instead of the means to worship. Our prayer becomes the end instead of the means to worship. The church becomes the end instead of the means to worship. Listen, we we worship the wrong things so many times. So many people worship their church. So many people worship their sanctuary. Ain't much to worship in this one, but it happens. Some people worship their denomination or their non-denomination. Some people worship their theology rather than the one it points to. Some people worship their spouse. Some people worship their children. That'll get on some toes. If you don't worship your kids, then why are they telling you what to do? Because we worship the wrong thing. Our Bible reading, our prayer, all of those things are not the end of worship. They're a means to point us to the worship, the one we should worship. But so many times we think if I don't do it at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock on Sunday, if it's not in my morning devotional, if it's not in my nighttime devotional, then God can't move. And I fear this, that we become like the invalid, that we don't even expect nor desire God to move because we become so conditioned. I ran out of breath <laughs> with where we're at. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for this church, for this community, for the world to settle for some religious Junk that does not have the power to do what God wants to do in our lives. Verse 7, he keeps on. He says, no one helps me when the water is stirred. And then he says, while I am trying to get in. While I am trying to get in. The next limitation is we settle for what I can do. He's saying, I I do everything I can, but I can't get in there. And the thing is, no one else can be your savior and you can't be your savior either. You can't save you. Listen, this is hard for us to accept because in so many ways, we're we're so um, self-sufficient, so independent. But the reality of it all is this, you can't be good enough. You can't do enough to save yourselves before a holy God. You'll never do enough. You'll never be good enough, you'll never pray enough, you'll never go to church enough, you'll never study enough, you'll never go to connect group enough, you'll never go to Sunday school enough, you'll never do any of that to make yourself right because you can't save you. The only thing that can save you, the only thing that can change you, the only thing that can fill you with purpose and put you on a mission is when you put your trust, the full weight of your life on Christ, who he is, what he said and what he's done. That is it. We I know some of y'all have been waiting on a story from Utah, so I figure I'd go ahead and give one. We we went on a sleigh ride dinner. I didn't want to go to start with, but it was the sleigh ride from hell. I thought at any moment, just to just to tell you this, this is this is the honest truth. I'm not gonna go into it in a lot of detail. It wasn't even a sleigh, it was a wagon. And so we go on this sleigh ride and I'm thinking any moment we're going to fall off into the pit of hell because this is what it feels like. And and, and we had a, a 40 minute ride to get there and a 40 minute ride to get back because that's how it works. And we had a guy that drove us. We didn't have a car. And so we took public transportation, which is another story. And and then we had this guy, they set up to come pick us up and take us to and from the sleigh ride. And this guy, he was from Hawaii. He had moved to Park City to retire. I'm like, isn't that kind of backwards? But anyway, he had, he had done that. And, and so we, we started talking. This was the nicest man I have ever met in my life. No joke. He was so nice that you thought like any minute he's going to kill me and take my wallet. Because you just were like, this, there's no way this guy is this nice. But it turns out it's just who he was. I mean, he was just incredibly nice. And so we started talking on the way there. He was such a great conversationalist that I talked for 40 minutes there and 40 minutes back with him. That don't happen. And so... When, when, when we were talking, the church came up and I was talking to him about that. And, and he was, and and then we talked about that some, he listened to uh, one of our songs that the church wrote because he was interested in the kind of music we did and that kind of thing. And then on the way back, we got to talking about the messages and I told him, we preach in a lot of series. We do a lot of series in our church. He said, well, what series are you doing now? And I told him, and then I said, but we're about to do a series out of the book of Galatians. He goes, what's the book of Galatians? What's it what's it about? I said, well, it was written by the Apostle Paul. He goes, I think I've heard of him. I was like, this guy don't have a clue. I could tell him anything I wanted to tell him, right? And so I started telling him about what the book of Galatians was written for and that Paul had written it to this church, these churches in Galatia, and that, that he was trying to keep them from falling back into this works based mentality of doing all these legal things but not having a relationship with God, of focusing on all these legal things uh, um, obligations without focusing on their relationship with Jesus. And he was trying to protect them from falling back into that and not trusting in the Holy Spirit. And I said, because so many times as Christians and as religious people, we oftentimes trust in what we can do rather than what Jesus has done. And when I said that, it was like a light bulb went off in his head and he was like, that makes sense. He was like, that I can understand that. He's like, you put it in a way that that I understand. I was like, somebody finally understood what I'm saying. And so it was crazy that in like 40 minutes on a drive back, we talk about the book of Galatians and he like got it right there. He was like, wow, that really impacts how I think and what I think about God. And here's the thing that I thought about in the car is how does this guy get this in a 40-minute conversation? And yet we as church people sit in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we still haven't got it. We still haven't wrapped our mind around it. That it's not about what we do, it's about what he's done. It's not about fixing us because we can't fix us. It's about keeping our eyes on the one who can fix us. It's not about walking in our own strength and just doing godly things. It's about the spirit of God working in us to transform us into his image. It's about the light of God in our heart that's rooting out everything that's dark. It's about the light of God in our heart rooting out everything that is evil. It's about the transformation that only happens through Jesus. But we, don't, we, don't, we, we can't wrap our mind around it. We'd rather look at other people's big sins than deal with our own junk. We'd rather talk about them because they smoke or they drink or they used to do drugs or they currently do drugs. where we're at. Rather than dealing with the issue of what's going on in my heart, we take snapshots of people's lives and we judge them by that snapshot. We don't look at the whole picture of where they've come from and where they're going. And we got to realize, guys, that look, I can't save me. I can't change me. All that I can do is draw near to the one who can. And his promise is that if I will draw near to him, he will draw near to me. When you look at all of this, Jesus revealing himself as God, it's Christmas time. He came, that's why he came. And you look, I think about it like this, that that so many times we, we don't really walk in the, Light of God. I was thinking about when I was little and we played hide and go seek. And and I remember being too scared to go all the way out in the dark woods. But I didn't want to be in the light because then they would find me out. So I would kind of stay in the shadows. I'd just get in the shadows and try to find a place that they couldn't see me. As I thought about this week, I thought about how much is church like that? So many people sit in church week after week and our conscience tells us, our our mind tells us, like I I know I don't need to be in the darkness and that really scares me a little bit. I, I know I can't completely turn my back on God but I also don't know if I want to be in the light because if I'm in the light, I'm exposed. If I'm in the light, I I can't act perfect. If I'm in the light, people see my flaws. If I'm in the light, people see my imperfections. If I'm in the light, I got to admit I'm a sinner. If I'm in the light, I got to admit I need a savior. If I'm in the light, I can't fix myself. But if I'm in the shadows, I can try to make myself look good. But listen, the church has far too long, instead of dealing with the issues in the light, we tried to just deal with the things that no one takes offense to. We don't talk about real things enough. We don't talk about lust We don't talk about sexual immorality. We don't talk about the things we look at on our smartphone or on our computer. We don't talk about pornography. We don't talk about homosexuality. We don't talk about all forms of sexual immorality. We don't talk about those things. We don't talk about marital unfaithfulness. We don't talk about how how we're supposed to raise our kids up in the way they should go rather than worshiping our kids. We don't talk about those things. But I'm telling you, if we want to get well, we can't be in the darkness and we can't think that somehow I can live in the shadows. In fact, I would tell you spiritually, there is no such thing as the shadow because here's the reality. You are either in the dark or you are either in the light. I am either in the dark or I am either in the light. You cannot compromise good. You cannot compromise evil. You cannot compromise righteousness. You cannot compromise unrighteousness. Those things don't mesh. We are either one or we're the other. There is no in between. There is no I'm kind of saved. It's like being kind of pregnant. You either are or you ain't. There is no in between. But church has oftentimes become about, I'm gonna create this place that my conscience has a false sense of security and I can make myself look real good and it's called the shadow, but it's a figment of our imagination because spiritually it does not exist. And so here's what I know that I'm three minutes over. That's what I know. But I'm, I'm gonna shut it down with this. Jesus in verse eight gives a clear command. He tells him to walk. My prayer today is that God would speak to our hearts and command us to come into the light. For some, listen, you're a Christian. You're in the light. But there's areas of your heart that you're trying to shield from the light of God. There's areas in your heart that are those dark corners that you've hidden and you don't wanna let go of. Maybe it's self-dependency, maybe it's pride, maybe it's lust, maybe it's materialism. I'm telling you today, listen, don't let an obstacle, he said that he couldn't get in the pool because of other people. Don't let an obstacle stand in your way. The Bible says that faith, the size of a mustard seed moves mountains. For some of us, and this is the most difficult position to be in, for some of us, we're what I was talking about as the shadows. We think we're somehow in an in-between place. Listen, there's no one foot in and one foot out. And this is the hardest one to admit because as people who are in church, we have to admit that much of our life has been a facade. Much of our life has been pretend. Much of our life has even been a lie because we've acted like something that we know we don't have. And then there's those, and this is my favorite people to be around. They're in the darkness. Like they, they know their sin, they know. Like I ain't pretending. I don't even really care what you think about me. I just never walked into the light. I've never had that relationship with God. And so I want you to see this, that wherever we're at, we need to get real honest with God and hear God's command to come into the light. And listen, it's not coming from an ogre or a tyrant. It's coming from a God of love that we celebrate tomorrow and today and should every day of our life that he sent his one and only son because he loved so much the goal of this is not to hurt you the goal of this is to heal you and make you whole and so my challenge to you is do you want to get well do you want to respond to god Will you take that step? Do you have the courage? We could go through all the witnesses that Jesus gave because we still have those. But I'm gonna tell you this. I think the biggest thing is, are you gonna respond to what God's doing in your heart? Regardless of what the person next to you thinks, regardless of anything else, are you gonna respond to what God has put in your heart? Whether you're a believer that's holding back, whether you are pretending to be in the shadows, or whether you're walking in darkness. If you're walking in darkness and today you say, I want to come into the light. Or you've been in the shadows and you've been pretending. And today's a day of salvation. God's love is now. His life is now. His forgiveness is now. And you say, I want to put my trust in Jesus and what he's done, what he's said, and who he is. I'm going to ask you right now, raise your hand and say, I want that relationship with God. I want to know him. Amen. Miss Vivian in the very back back there. Right there. Raising. He's got his hand up. <laughs> Death to life. Death to life. Listen, guys. I, sometimes I, I go home and I beat myself up after I preach because I'm like, was I, was I too hard on them? Was, was I... You need to know that I'm, I'm here to tell you the truth. I want you to know the truth. I want you to embrace the truth. I want you to receive the truth because the truth sets you free. I want to pray and listen, you've been holding back, man, Listen. Let's be real. If any time of the year, Christmas, Jesus came for this to set us free, if you need to get down here, get down here. I don't care what the person next to you thinks, what your spouse thinks. I don't, I don't care. Do what God says. So I'm gonna pray you move. You come, you pray. You get before the Holy God and you let him move the obstacles in your life. Father, I thank you so much for all you do, all you've done. God, we celebrate today that you came. You came to earth. You left heaven. You emptied yourself. You served us even to the point of death and death on a cross. You became a curse so that we could be blessed with your power and presence and purpose in our lives. God, let that sink in. Let us walk in that. God, thank you that you want to make us whole. You want to fill in the holes in our heart, the cracks in our life with the light of love and grace and mercy. You want to give us your righteousness and then work that out of our salvation. Jesus, thank you. We love you, Lord. We love you and thank you for all you do, all you've done, who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.